Undercurrents, the hidden knowledge of groundwater, a production of the University of Wisconsin Water Resources Institute. Hello again, this is Dr. Chris Bocast. Thanks so much for joining us. You look nice today. In the author's note that starts his 2012 book, Damnation, it's about the development of water in the American West, not a manual for swearing, writer Stephen Grace shares the following observation. Most books about water are, unfortunately, quite dry. The stuff upon which empires are founded and works of art are built, water should never be dull. To make it so, by letting legalese and technical jargon deaden water's capacity to stimulate avarice and awe, to make poets write verse and politicians wage war, is to drain a teeming river to a dusty bed. Water moves through our bodies, through the world we inhabit, through the societies we construct. When you explore water, you explore everything. Okay, I added the drum fill, but what Grace articulates about water underscores the fascination of learning about the environment. You do get to explore everything making the effort to extend your understanding of the innumerable threads that make up this tangled skine of a planet can sometimes leave you feeling a few lifetimes short of getting a handle on it, but it is often in ordinary, everyday things like water that you occasionally come across new information, information that can fundamentally transform the way you look at the world. You come away changed. This happened to me when I undertook my investigations into groundwater, and so I must tell you at the start that my motives with this series are not pure. I intend to infect you with curiosity, to tear apart some of your preconceived notions, and perhaps, just perhaps, to warp your mind. Now to do this, we must find a path that leads from myth to science a process artfully described by the great 19th century explorer and scientist Alexander von Humboldt as Apprehending the Apparition. Stand by any river in a rainstorm and your eyes will show you the obvious. The rain falling from the sky, even in an extended downpour, is simply not enough to account for the volume of water flowing past you. So the famed Greek philosopher Aristotle observed long ago, and accordingly he reasoned that water must cycle through the earth from cracks in the seafloor or some such, and ultimately issue forth again somewhere in the high mountains in order to feed the mighty rivers. Now, this was explanation enough for most folks for many centuries, but in this case, Aristotle was wrong. It wasn't until the 17th century that anyone got around to actually measuring anything to see if this theory held water. At this time, it fell to the French to take the initiative.
1674, Pierre Perrault, a French lawyer, published an anonymous book. Remember, they still occasionally burn folks at the stake for witchcraft, heresy, and ideas that were just too darn new. His book showed how, by using rain gauges, he measured the amount of precipitation that fell on the catchment basin of the Seine over a year. He then calculated the amount of water discharged by the Seine annually and came to a definitive conclusion. Le measurement is simple. In the future, there will be a metric system to make this easier. Despite the frustrating lack of standardization in French measurements at the time, Perrault was able to definitively prove that the rain that fell on the watershed of the Seine River more than accounted for the volume of water flowing to the sea. Edme Marriott, also French and a renowned experimentalist, made some similar measurements around the same time and arrived at the same results. A few years later, the famed British astronomer Edmund Halley, who was initially merely annoyed at the condensation that seemed to continually form on his telescope lenses, became interested in measuring evaporation and concluded after gathering data on the Mediterranean Sea, that more than enough water evaporated from that ocean to account for all the rivers running from the Alps. This was the start of our comprehension of the Earth's hydrological cycle, as we refer to it now. This knowledge became critical once the Industrial Revolution got underway in the 1800s. The growing populations in cities that embraced the concentrated industry of the New Age found out that they had some tricky new problems. Along with a general need for improved sanitation, municipalities were discovering that wells in their cities were becoming contaminated and odorous. The increased sewage from larger and more concentrated numbers of people and factories was overwhelming the natural filtration capacity of local groundwater systems. Systems that these cities relied on. Sir, we ain't got no privies, no dustbins, no water supplies, and no drain or sewer in the old place. The stench of a gully hole is disgusting. We all of us suffer. And numbers are ill, and if a cholera comes, Lord help us, we are living like pigs! The weakness of then-current strategies of sinking a well every several blocks to supply each neighborhood with fresh water was becoming obvious and potentially lethal. The famous case from 1850s London of John Snow deducing from carefully analyzed and mapped data that a particular pump was the source of a cholera epidemic is a classic in the annals of science and critical thinking. Most folks will likely recall the story of Snow petitioning to remove the handle from the pump of the infected well at Broad Street and subsequently deaths from cholera decreasing dramatically. This rather simplified version omits a couple of significant points, though. The first is Snow's brilliant use of negative data. 
Close to the center of the locations reporting high numbers of sickness, he noticed two large buildings where people had not come down with the disease. This was not what he expected, especially as one was a brewery that employed a goodly number of people, and the other was a boarding house that had well over a hundred lodgers. Both of these places should have logically contained a concentration of cholera victims. Rather than ignore this disconfirming evidence, Snow investigated. He discovered that both establishments had sunk their own proprietary wells, and both of these were much deeper than the wells feeding the neighborhood pumps. By studying where cholera was not occurring, Snow was able to zero in on the suspect well and reinforce his original hypothesis. All too often, researchers can be presented with inconsistent findings that do not support their initial premise and the human tendency to discount information contrary to a cherished supposition can be strong. But in the end, credibility is enhanced by accounting for all relevant evidence. The other thing to keep in mind is by that time, deaths from cholera were decreasing in the area anyway. Uh. Huh? This is why common sense and context are so important in applying data to the real world. Untreated cholera is a killer. When the cholera first broke out on August 31st, 1854, there was a tremendous surge in deaths over the next few days in the vicinity of the Broad Street pump. By the time the pump handle was removed on September 7th, Lacking any antibiotics or other real defense against the disease, three-quarters of the surviving locals had fled. The death count would have proportionally decreased regardless. The critical point is that no new cases of cholera were reported. Snow convincingly demonstrated a causal link between cholera infection and the Broad Street pump. Though the actual discovery of the cholera bacterium was still 30 years in the future, as far as the source of the epidemic, Jon Snow was right, and he proved it. This incident, and many others like it, revealed both structural weaknesses in the methods used to provide urban water supplies and fundamental gaps in the understanding of how water operates inside the ground. But as it turns out, someone was grappling with both of these problems at the very same time that Jon Snow was plotting cholera data on a map of London. That person would become immortalized in hydrology for formulating what came to be known as Darcy's Law. Across the channel, in the French town of Dijon, an engineer named Henry Darcy had been assigned to bring fresh water from a spring 10 kilometers away in order to relieve the town's chronic lack of clean water. Such projects were straightforward enough as far as moving the water. Romans had built aqueducts long ago all across France, and the technology was known. What Darcy did not know was how to design a set of sand beds that the city intended to install in order to filter the spring water. Darcy's problem lay in being able to estimate the flow of the water through the sand beds accurately in order to build sturdy and functional structures for the system. No one knew how to do that. Being a sensible fellow, Darcy began by creating physical models of sand filters to study. Patient experiment and observation allowed him to deduce a mathematical description for the rate that water will flow through a porous substance. 
derived from the cross-sectional area through which that flow occurs, the slope, also known as the hydraulic gradient, and the permeability of the medium. Hydrologists like to call this hydraulic conductivity. This simple proportional formula became foundational for modern hydrology. Darcy's law was immediately useful for predicting fluid seepage from dams, and people quickly realized it could be used to predict the flow of water through aquifers. It is essential today for determining both the behavior of contaminant plumes within groundwater systems and the best responses to contain them. Darcy's law remains one of the most powerful secrets of groundwater and sees continual application in water projects across the world. It is so useful in the petroleum industry, with slight modification for the viscosity of different fluids, that petroleum engineers even refer to a unit of intrinsic permeability as a Darcy. As groundbreaking as Darcy's Law turned out to be, there was still something important that it couldn't help with. What about groundwater that is already in the ground and not moving at all? With the development of a mathematical model to describe groundwater flow, the precedent had been set, but it would be the 1930s before an American hydrologist, Charles Theus, took the next step and determined a way to approach storativity in groundwater systems. In its simplest sense, storativity is a ratio of the volume of water going in or out of an aquifer and the total volume of that aquifer. Knowing this allows scientists to measure the impact of droughts and wells and to estimate recharge for aquifers. This is kind of important these days. Theus based his equation on established formulas that predicted the flow and storage of heat in solids. His non-equilibrium equation is not used in its original, somewhat cumbersome form, but has been adapted and streamlined and is as important to the understanding of well hydraulics as Darcy's Law is to understanding groundwater. And as you will see in coming episodes, wells continue to be a primary source for those in pursuit of the knowledge of groundwater. So what have all these scientists figured out? What have they apprehended about this apparition we call groundwater, so important for the future and so rarely seen? This is what the next episodes will focus on, but I'm guessing that you already have a few questions. One of these might be, how much groundwater is there anyway? The numbers vary, but a likely estimate is about 97% of all the water on Earth is saline water in the oceans. Okay, that means 3% of all the water on Earth is fresh. Out of that 3%, about 75% is locked up in glaciers and ice. Okay, that leaves you 3 quarters of 1% of all the available water. And out of that 3 quarters of 1%, 98% of that is groundwater. Well, once you wrap your head around that, you will never think of the phrase dry land in the same way again. The continents are actually quite soggy. In the 1970s, Soviet scientists drilled a 12-kilometer, quote, super deep, unquote, borehole in the Kola Peninsula in the Russian Arctic. 
there were signs of groundwater to nine kilometers down. In this world, there is ocean, there is land beneath the ocean, and there is waterlogged land surrounded by the oceans. We really should have called this planet water. But let's extrapolate these global numbers to something a little more familiar. Think about the Mississippi River, or if you like, any other major river that you're familiar with. In your mind, watch it flying by. Rather impressive, is it not? Now, realize that the river you are visualizing represents only 2% of the total volume of water that is actually flowing in that system. The rest of the water in that hydrologic organism is moving slowly along with it in the floodplain, under and around the river, through the earth itself. Keep that picture in your mind, because if you do, your definitional idea of what a river is should profoundly change. It might take a couple of tries, but I strongly encourage you to do this. You will arrive at a deeper and more intuitive understanding of rivers and why rivers do what they do. The myths surrounding water that I shared with you earlier are certainly colorful and entertaining explanations of the world around us. But like the past from which they came, they are frozen in time. They cannot flow. This is the enduring strength of science. Its dynamic nature gives it more explanatory power. It can predict. It can use those predictions to shape decisions and events. It can respond to and evolve with new information, becoming even stronger as evidence and experiment accumulate. Like water itself, that knowledge flows. Odin would probably give his other eye for some of it. Anyway, for now, do yourself a favor and go find a real river. Take some time to really observe it and see if your own perspective hasn't changed. While you're doing that, I need to go find some hydrogeologists who can explain what the heck it is these folks are doing these days. I think I know where to look, so let's meet up over there in the next episode and see what else we can discover about the hidden knowledge of groundwater. This has been a production of the University of Wisconsin Water Resources Institute. This is Dr. Chris. Till next time, thanks for listening.